2: it's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Back
3: in action today. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. We're coming up on our last real full week of the summer. Many of you are away. Many of you are listening for the first time for that. I appreciate it. Uh, with us this hour is going to be Congressman Jason Smith, the House Ways and Means uh, chairman. We'll talk about Bidenomics and more. And then Byron York at the bottom of the hour uh, talking about preview and reviewing uh, what will be uh, week one of the debates. Of course, looking at the fourth indictment for President Trump, who tells us. Through Truth Social, he won't be there. So let's get to the big three.
2: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three.
1: This will and have been one of the largest strategic errors I've ever seen a prosecutor make. She had, again, the strongest case against Donald Trump on the fake electors. She should have brought that alone. And instead, you know, yeah, but she but wanted but the bigger head. But-
3: right. And Preet Bhargara was trying to get a word in. Yeah, it's true. You overcharged. Trump on trial. Has Mark Meadows flipped? The Georgia State trial screwed everything up for Jack Smith's prosecutions. Will any trial take place before Election Day? We'll have it all.
2: Number two.
4: And I believe that one reason that Hunter was CC'd on those emails where Joe Biden was using a fake name is so Hunter could prove to the Ukrainian oligarch, look, help is on the
3: way. James Comer details on the deal that wasn't for Hunter. So clearly the whistleblowers stopped Hunter from skating. Now... New reevaluations of VP Biden. Turns out he's got some alias emails. He was worried about being hacked. Could they lead to proof positive he set up Hunter's deals and fired prosecutors and more to line his pockets? We will see.
0: Number one. No one in this country even knew who I was six months ago. And so I'm looking forward to introducing myself to the people.
5: We feel really good going into the debate. I love debates and I'm looking forward to it. I feel like I've been preparing for this uh First Republican presidential debate my whole life.
3: Debate week is here. And who is in and who is out and who chooses to miss? We set the table, bring you the latest from the trail, and love them or not, we look at the over-the-top attacks on Governor DeSantis, the latest hit priests in the New York Times. We always talk about Donald Trump, and we always talk about his being attacked. I know somebody brings on himself. He doesn't care. And when you attack him, he ups the ante. And that's always been his way. You come at me with atomic weapons. I come at you with 10 nuclear weapons. It's always been his way since the 80s. And he said it in his book. And he was always told that by Roy Cohn. But if anyone thinks that a Republican not named Donald Trump is not going to be under the same attacks because they're not like Donald Trump, you are mistaken. Just look at Ron DeSantis. I mean, I know the Trump team came at him with $20 million of ads before he even declared. That's tough. But I'm talking about the 60 Minutes piece that came at him. And then we're seeing now the New York Times comes at him about his Ivy League education. Really? They're taking Disney's side, of course, in the battle with Disney. Disney blew it themselves, decided to go against his legislation that he passed. He took them on, took out their autonomous status. On top of that, made some hideous moves and movies. And now they've upped their rates when it comes to these Amusement parks, but no, it's Ron DeSantis who's the bad guy. And what happens is, at this moment when we're talking about inter-party inter fights for the Republicans, so they're taking this opportunity to take down the guy that is a solid second place. Now, he has lost ratings. But if you look at the New York Times piece, it is just taking him apart because he went to Yale and Harvard, saying that how dare he be anti-Avi League, yet he went to Yale and Harvard. Listen, if you read the story, nothing about it is odd. He is against the Ivy League mentality, like this, my colleague Pete Hegseth. He went to Princeton. He should be proud of that. To be able to get in, to be able to play basketball, he should be proud of it. But he's not now. And then you have Ron DeSantis. He's proud that he got to Yale. He got it through baseball. He got great grades. But he's a middle-class guy with no legacy and got into Yale and became captain of the baseball team. His grades were through the roof while having three jobs. I would not run from that. But that's saying, well, Ron DeSantis and this woke personality and this whole thing that he's doing about pushing back against the man is not true. Yeah, it is. Same way it was with Ted Cruz. I imagine with Kaylee McEnany. These guys and these ladies went to Ivy League schools and they looked around and said, wow, I'm really the minority here. Not black or white or Hispanic. Not that I'm a woman or a man. is that I'm a conservative. And it, it fortified their belief that they were on the right track. They should not run for that. And if you look at the New York Times story, it tried desperately to land, but it didn't. And I'm just taken aback by the length they go to dethrone and defame Ron DeSantis. He's solid, really good candidate, unbelievably bright. He is, you know, there's he's not Bill Clinton on the stump, but he's solid. You know, better than Al Gore ever was. You could say that George W. Bush I thought was very personable, too. People didn't like John McCain, thought he was too abrupt. I don't know. Governor Huckabee was fantastic, but the guy that won was Mitt Romney was stiffer than that. So people have pluses and minuses. But take note right now. CBS poll shows that Donald Trump's up 61 to 35 over DeSantis, uh, over 20 percent uh, to for uh, Tim Scott. Uh, uh, eighteen yeah. percent for Ramaswamy. Yeah, eighteen percent for Ramaswamy. Fourteen percent for Haley. Fourteen percent for Pence. That's according to CBS U Gov poll on the GOP primary voters, uh, saying uh, saying definitively where they stand. And because of that, Trump's not coming. He's up in the CBS poll overall, sixty two sixteen over DeSantis and seven for Ramaswamy. And then Mike Pence five. Haley's got three, Uh, Scott's got three, Haley's got two, Christie's got two. 538 polls shows Trump's up 53 to 14, Ramaswamy's eight pences, 4.7. Debate means a lot. And it's an interesting challenge not having Trump there. When when asked GOP voters how much should they talk about Trump in the debate, guess what? 91% say make the case for themselves, only 9% make your case against Trump. I don't know what that will do to Chris Christie's strategy. Also, when asked on the CBS poll, what do GOP voters want to hear? 86% economy, 83% violent crime, 81% illegal immigration. Here's how they're all preparing. Cut one.
0: No one in this country even knew who I was six months ago. And so I'm looking forward to introducing myself to the people. I think Donald Trump is free to make whatever decision he feels is right for him. We feel really
5: good going into the debate. I love debates, and I'm looking forward to it. And I think it's a great opportunity for Americans to start focusing on who's going to lead us after 2024. I'm just going to be me. I mean, I I feel like I've been preparing for this uh, first Republican presidential debate my whole life.
3: So I think Pence will be solid. Governor, vice president, congressman. Obviously, knows things, got the experience. And he also says he's different from President Trump more than just January 6th. He says, I'm different when it comes to entitlements, and I'm different when it comes to Ukraine and being an arsenal of democracy. So that's interesting. He says he wanted uh, the President Trump to show up. He also, would be interesting if he was, but Vivek Ramaswamy is the only one who said President really shouldn't show up for the first couple of debates. He totally understands it with a lead like he has. So that's kind of an interesting way Ramaswamy saying... I want President Trump to be my mentor, but it's my time right now. For Governor Ron DeSantis, he is having an interesting situation where everyone's jumping on everything he says. Now, he's got to separate himself from Trump, why he's even running, at the same time get Trump's voters and say why he'd be different. He's more effective. He says he'd do certain things different. He said he'd, he'd do a better job at draining the swamp. He said Trump didn't drain the swamp. I personally think it's impossible to drain the swamp. But they jump on every word he says. Now, listen to this and tell me if you have a problem with it, because a lot of Trump supporters do. Here we go. Cut to.
6: You could be the most conservative person since sliced bread unless you're kissing his rear end. They will somehow call you a rhino. If all we are is listless vessels that just supposed to follow, you know, whatever happens to come down the pike on Truth Social every morning, that's not going to be a durable movement.
3: So he said that, and people say listless vessels, and the Trump camp said this is like saying bucket of deplorables. He's trying to say, obviously, to Trump voters, don't be a listless vessel. Pick your head up, look around, and know there's alternatives. It's not Joe Biden. Got it. I signed a pledge to sign whoever the Republican nominee is. But don't be a listless vessel. Demand more from your politicians. And ask yourself what they stand for and how they rule and how you want it to be different. And if that rule— Comes up and says, "Okay, I still want Trump. That's fine," but demand to know where people stand, and he wants to be the alternative. Obviously, so we will see. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Do you think the Republicans are always going to be treated like Trump is treated if you are a front runner? I say absolutely yes. Just wait. If Vivek rises, you wait where they come after him. They'll come after him differently, but you wait for them to come after him. When we come back, Congressman Jason Smith, we'll talk about Bidenomics, why the president's running on it, where we're at right now. Uh, also, about the despicable move for this president to chop up and sell off pennies on the dollar, a border wall we all paid for under the Trump administration that was in the desert. But when they passed a piece of legislation that was going to demand that Democrats signed off on two in the Senate, that they start putting it up, he started selling it off. To me, there's got to be a legal angle on that. I'm going to ask Congressman Jason Smith, Republican out of Missouri, about that. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move.
2: Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade from the Fox News Podcasts
7: Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter, and I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech
8: Podcast.
2: Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. We
4: learned that uh, when... He was receiving emails pertaining to Ukraine. His son, Hunter, was copied on him, which we've always heard that the White House has said that Hunter Biden wasn't an employee of the government. He wasn't any part of the government. They couldn't understand why House Republicans on the Oversight Committee were investigating Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, because Hunter wasn't a part of the government. Well, if that were true, then why was he receiving emails from the government?
3: With a pseudonym from his dad. So, Congressman Jason Smith, the pot thickens. You're the House and Wayne's committee chairperson. Do you care? Should anyone care about this, that the vice president was using an alias?
9: Absolutely. Brian, it's great to be with you, but we absolutely need to pay attention to this. And and I strongly support Comer pushing the National Archives for these records, these um, unredacted documents. And I think— What we've said all along is we're going to follow the facts, myself, Jim Jordan, and Jamie Comer, through the Ways and Means Judiciary and Oversight Committees. And it's, it's amazing. There's a lot of facts that we're following, but most importantly, Brian, there's 13 people that we have, we have requested for them to come before Congress. We requested at the end of June, and it's 13 people that were in attendance of an October 7th, 2022 meeting where Mr. Weiss was there with our IRS whistleblowers. And he said at that time that uh, basically, the buck doesn 't stop with him it's it 's above him where the decisions are being made, and he 's denying that the whistleblowers are countering that, and so we need the other people in the room to come forward
3: also Congressman Smith, we find out uh, in reading the New York Times story the reason why the whole uh, deal blew up was because of whistleblowers and because you guys brought them forward. To, to testify, and no one could find a political motive. Only the fact is that it was pretty clear that this was not a real investigation that took place over five years, and these guys could not find a political motive, so they had to listen, and the embarrassment got too great. How does that make you feel?
9: You know, Brian, whenever the whistleblowers came to, to me as chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, and I sat down in the depositions and asked them questions, I saw how sincere and how rare, how real Mr. Ziegler and Mr. Shapley are and how they just cared about their job and they didn't like the injustice that was happening. The two tier legal system. One, if your last name Biden and one is if you're everyone else. And they highlighted numerous aspects where the Department of Justice came in and delayed the prosecution in such a way that the statute of limitations expired for the most egregious proposed tax crimes of 2014 and 15, where they divulged information where DOJ divulged information to Hunter Biden's lawyers so that they would give him a heads up before any search warrants. And where, of course, they denied the ability to bring charges in other jurisdictions. Why in the world, Brian, would the Attorney General of the United States put appoint a White as special counsel after he already created this sweetheart agreement that he was the architect of? If, if White had al- already always had the authority according to the attorney general and according to weiss i'd say the whistleblowers are the only ones that have been consistent throughout this whole process the stories have changed for the Bidens and for mr weiss
3: so the assistant to david weiss is leslie wolf it turns out she's got ties and uh, uh, donated to the obama campaign next thing you know that was embarrassing for them they had her step aside yet she was the one brokering the deal most of the time she was the one who told them don't go into the guest house uh, and they gave him a heads up before they got there and said, you know, you're not going to probe into Joe. I don't understand this. And I'm, I really don't understand it. They said the defense said we will put Joe Biden on the stand. Why would David Weiss care if they put Joe Biden on the stand? If they want to put the president on the stand to embarrass himself in every way, and we all know. Why wouldn't why do you care about that?
9: You know, one thing. Um, the American people have been surprised by what came out through the whistleblowers and the information of how the investigation worked out, but. The one group, the one body that was not surprised about anything is the Department of Justice because they knew how everything went throughout the whole process. So it's no shock for Ms. Mr. Weiss, it's no shock for Leslie Wolf, and it's no no shock for the Attorney General of the United States. It's quite disturbing of their actions. There, there was a point that, like you said, they needed to search. The president's guest house, because that's where Hunter Biden was residing, and Leslie Wolf would not allow it to happen because under no circumstances can we look at the vice president's home.
3: Uh, I want you to hear what people say as an excuse for the pseudonames. Jay Carney, June 2013, when it was found that Obama had pseudo emails that were were his but under a different name, Cut24
0: having alternate email addresses for cabinet secretaries and other high profile officials makes eminent sense uh, much as it does for columnists for example of major publications who provide email addresses for their readers but have alternate work email addresses so that the if they are inundated in one account with either public emails or spam or the like that they can continue to uh, use their other account for uh, normal work and that is the case with uh, Officials of this administration, officials of the previous administrations, uh, who have had email addresses, uh, and, and the, the fundamental question here, in terms of FOIA requests and congressional inquiries, is that all these email addresses are included.
3: Your your answer to that.
9: Brian, it's a consistent pattern of how the Bidens have been operated. Devin Archer testified before the Oversight Committee, and Joe Biden was, quote, referred to as the brand. There's other people that came forward that's referred to Joe Biden as the big guy. Um, the, there was over 20 LLCs that Jamie Conner, Comer has found and discovered where the Biden family would use to hide and transfer money from different entities and Romania China, the Ukraine, other countries, there's a reason why they use fake names. There's a reason why they use multiple LLCs. They're trying to make sure people can't figure out what they're doing.
3: And were they susceptible to the FOIA request? When they gave you these emails, did they say, oh, by the way, this is Joe Biden. This is guy, I guess his name is Reynolds. This is Joe Biden. Did they tell you that?
9: (laughs) They did not. And in fact, most of those emails were redacted in such a way. That's why we've asked the National Archives to give us unredacted emails so we can actually see the content of the material of these emails and we can continue to follow the facts.
3: And Congressman, you know, it's a shame you're doing better work in six months than Weiss did in five years. And it, there seems to be a lack of curiosity in what this guy was up to. And now you guys are up to $50 million.
9: Where is this money? Final thought. It, it, it's disappointing. But just look at the, the net worth of how the entire Biden family has increased over the last decade. That's where the money has gone. Right. We saw a $140,000 Porsche to Hunter Biden, an $80,000 diamond ring. The whistleblowers highlighted numerous things. Numerous right.
3: examples, but now he's living uh, squatting over in Malibu, so and painting through a straw. Something's weird. Congressman Jason Smith, thank you. Fire in York next.
2: Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
10: You can believe whatever you want about the 2020 election. That is your right. I understand that. I have no problem with that. But the thing is, that was three years ago. And if you're still mad about that, quit complaining about that. Sign up to be a poll worker. Be a poll watcher. Get involved in the process.
3: Uh, so that is Brian Kemp at the Eric Erickson event over the weekend. And they're still talking about all the indictments. And, I, you know, the more we hear about this prosecutor in Georgia trying 19 people, almost prevented from being tried this year. Byron York joins us now, chief political correspondent, Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. And one of the cool things is uh, that you'll find uh, with Byron and and just about every other expert, no one's been down this road before, Byron. I mean, we could say Grover Cleveland. I wasn't there. You weren't there. (laughs) Indictments. We've never had one, let alone four. So game on to everyone. Just be humble and tell me what you think. First off. Brian Kemp is saying this is pure political. This is political to wait two and a half years to charge the way they're doing. And it's hard to argue with politics playing a role with Jack Smith. Why else would they rush to get this done before the year's end? Well,
11: it's just a fact that the Justice Department, the Biden Justice Department, kind of dithered for more than a year uh, before they brought any charges. Uh, And as a matter of fact, there were some people on the left who were unhappy about that, because so much of the Jack Smith indictment, the federal indictment, actually mirrors what the January 6th committee in the House found out. And so, when the when the indictment comes out, there were people like Chris Hayes of MSNBC who were saying, "Why wasn't this done a year ago? We had the January all the the January 6th committee stuff, and now we've waited so long, and it's clearly going to interfere with the election." But you know, on the on the unprecedented part of it. Anytime something kind of unusual happens, I certainly think, and start looking around and says, well, has this ever happened before? Is there any sort of guidance you can get from, from this earlier events? And the answer with this is no. Even if Trump were not indicted, we haven't had a president, a former president, run for his old job again in living memory. You're right about Grover Cleveland. He's the only guy who actually successfully did it in the 19th century. Uh, but, it, you know, since then, maybe Teddy Roosevelt was interested in doing it, didn't work. But we just have never seen this happen, just apart from all the legal problems.
3: So listen to Sarah Isgore, who's become very anti-Trump on This Week with George Stephanopoulos, cut 33.
1: This will and have been one of the largest strategic errors I've ever seen a prosecutor make to include defendants she didn't need to include. And then because of that, have her case moved from state court Far more prosecution friendly in Georgia than the federal court rules are going to be. Different jury pool, no televised. Uh, and you're going to have a state prosecutor basically having to try this case under state law, true, but with federal procedural rules that she's not familiar with. And for what she had, again, the strongest case against Donald Trump on the fake electors, she should have brought that alone and instead, you know, yeah, she wanted but, the bigger but, headline. But Donald, but-
3: Right, she won the bigger headline. She talked about all those nineteen that they indicted. So, what are they going to do? And Mark Meadows already made the move by in New York to say move it to a federal court. And experts say, you know, you got a pretty good yeah. case because he was chief of staff to a to a president, and that's what their problem is—advice and what he knows about uh, what the president did.
11: I think you'll find the people who are most strongly against Trump, and as you know, when you're when you're against Trump, you're really against Trump. I think you'll find a lot of them are frustrated with the sort of sprawling nature of the Georgia indictment, and they look at the Jack Smith, the federal indictment, as its exact opposite. Because Jack Smith could have indicted a bunch of other people and charged a big scheme or something, but he was you know focused like a laser beam on getting Trump. So I, I think actually the more you want a clean indictment of just one person, the more you want to get Trump. Uh, and the more you're happy, you'd be fine to overlook some of the, the smaller players, even some of the larger players in the whole uh, 2020 election thing. But just get Trump, just make sure he can't run again or he can't be elected again. So I think that's what's behind some of this criticism of the Georgia thing.
3: Yeah, here's uh, here's what uh, Brian Kemp, who, you know, I guess Trump has uh, backed off a little bit. He has to cut 29.
10: One thing is certain about these indictments, and in my mind and my opinion, this trial, despite what dates anybody's asking for or anything else, it is not going to happen before the election. And the Democrats want us to be focused on things like this, so we're not focused on Joe Biden's record.
3: So he—that's interesting. He says there's no way it's going to be tried here. So which Jack? Obviously Jack Smith was talking to the uh, prosecutor in uh, in Fulton County. So yeah. does he want to go first with the documents? Good luck with that. Do you well, have to give that takes if, a long time to go through that.
11: Well, if you want to again, if you if you talk to the people who want to get Trump, what they would like to see is that the they would like to see the first scheduled trial. That is the trial in Manhattan the local prosecutor there, which is everybody believes is the weakest of the cases. Of course, they would like to see that just kind of step aside, just just move aside. You made your point, move aside. They want to see a trial on the Mar-a-Lago documents case because it's the cleanest and the simplest, and they believe the, the best proof of Trump committing actual wrongdoing. So if you want to get Trump, I mean, if that's the, the idea – behind these prosecutions, and we can talk about whether getting somebody should be the idea behind prosecutions. But if you want to get Trump, you want to have that documents trial first, get him convicted, and then you can call him a convicted felon for the rest of the campaign.
3: If that's who who floats your boat, uh, we'll see. So listen to this. ABC got a hold of the original introduction or chapter in Mark Meadows' book, and it's before Mark Meadows looked at it and said, you better change this. And they they review what they're saying is an early draft of Meadows' book that describes Trump talking about the document, allegedly a four-page war plan, from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Quote, on the couch in front of the president's desk, there's a four-page report uh, typed up by Mark Milley himself. It shows the general's own plan to attack Iran. When President Trump found this plan in his old files this morning, he pointed out that making this declassified would probably win his case. But those words did not appear in the final version of his book. According to sources, Meadows told investigators he directed the reference to Trump uh, possessing a classified war plan to be taken out of the book because he knew it would be, quote, problematic if Trump had such a document in his possession. What's your thoughts about this leak and the content of the leak?
11: Well, um, that does suggest, actually, that Trump inadvertently kept uh, the document when he left the presidency, but it also suggests that after he realized he had it, he still kept it. So I think that's um, – it is kind of enlightening on the way Trump handled documents. This is the document that Trump was supposedly waving around in front of the yeah. writer who was the, the ghostwriter who was writing Mark Meadows's. Book and was interviewing Trump for it, but uh, look on the on the on the documents case, um, it's pretty clear that there were classified documents and that Trump had them, and that he had a responsibility to give them back, and that there was a long runaround when the government, the National Archives, and then the Justice Department tried to get them back. That's just a
3: fact. Right. Uh, do you think Mark Meadows has flipped? I mean, would it, would, people don't know where to find him. I haven't heard anyone comment on yeah, it. Yeah,
11: there's a lot of speculation about that. I mean, Mark Meadows didn't immediately disappear upon leaving the White House, but now he's pretty much scarce. Um, so, you know, has he flipped? I I don't know. But the Justice Department, in terms of the Mar-a-Lago case, has a has a ton of evidence. Um, and I'm sure they always want more, but I don't think it's dependent on Mark Meadows or any single person.
3: Uh, let's talk about the debate that's coming up um, in Milwaukee. Yeah. It's going to be the first one. We're going to see like nine people on the stage. Uh, uh, we just see Governor Hutchinson is just qualified. Uh, we'll see what, what's at stake. Now, Trump says he's not coming. Put it on Truth Social. So let's assume Ron DeSantis is in the middle. What's at stake for the governor as the solid number two but but dropping?
11: Well, I think a, a huge amount is at stake because I think he's going to be – if if Trump is not there, um, we know that some people, Chris Christie, is going to be there to attack Trump. doesn't matter whether Trump is physically there or not. That's what he's going to do. Um, but I think the rest of them are not just going to gratuitously attack Trump because they know that a huge number of their Republican supporters – support Trump right now. they eventually want them to to change and vote for you know Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or whoever. But right now they support Trump. I don't think they want to just kick him in the teeth. So I think Ron DeSantis is the big target um, for Wednesday's debate if Trump doesn't show up. It's huge for Ron DeSantis because this conventional wisdom has set in that his campaign he's running a terrible campaign, it's falling. Uh, he's maybe just dead in the water. And it is a fact if you look at the real clear politics average polls um he was around DeSantis hit 30% in January and now he's around 15%. I mean his support is half of what it was at the beginning of this year. So I think he needs to show Viewers that he's really good. He's he's in command of the facts. He has a plan for what to do when he becomes uh, president, and he would be the strongest person to 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 take the office. I mean, so he really needs to to um, to get voters t- to figure out what it was <laughs> they liked about Ron DeSantis in the first place.
3: Right. And I just can't believe the amount of tack ads and won against DeSantis to begin with. And then you look at the yeah. New York Times story over the weekend. Just ripped him on his Ivy League background. Really? I read the story. There's nothing to it. And, and their obsession with going after Governor DeSantis is nuts. And Byron, I think it's a learned moment for the rest of the field. If you think because Trump is Trump, when he goes away, it's going to be more of a semi-level playing field you have not been paying attention to how Ron DeSantis was attacked outside the Trump campaign, just how he's that's been attacked.
11: That's absolutely correct. I mean, the, the idea is first destroy Trump. And then if DeSantis emerges as the successor, destroy DeSantis. But if somebody else emerges as a successor, destroy them too. So I, you know, that's pretty clearly the, uh, the idea uh, among Democrats, of course, and appears to be the idea in some
6: media circles as well.
3: Right. I I want you to hear something that DeSantis said and tell me if you think it's problematic because the Trump team jumped all over a cut to.
6: You could be the most conservative person since sliced bread unless you're kissing his rear end. They will somehow call you a rhino. If all we are is listless vessels that just supposed to follow, you know, whatever happens to come down the pike on Truth Social every morning, that's not going to be a durable movement.
3: So I mean the whole thing is a little different. He says, I don't think I think that we have a strand in our party that views supporting Trump as whether you're a rhino or not. And then he went into that soundbite. But now they're saying that's his deplorable moment. Did you take it like that?
11: Uh well, yeah, you know, first I thought listless vessels is a pretty clunky phrase. Deplorables was uh was just you know came off the tongue a lot more easily. Um it was what can you say? I I think it was actually true what he was saying that <laughs> about Trump, and you know so much of what Trump says about a person depends on what that person has said about Trump. If he, you know, if, if he's always, been, if, if Trump feels like he's always been treated nicely by somebody, then he doesn't attack them. If he feels like he hasn't, he has some grudge against them, and he does attack them. Um, and I think that basically, Desantis was saying something. He said it pretty inelegantly. Um, But he was basically saying that, look, you know, Republican voters need to view this situation critically. They need to use their common sense uh, and see what is what's the best way to defeat Joe Biden, not not to pick a Republican nominee, but to defeat Joe Biden in 2024.
3: Right. I mean, he went on to say Chip Roy endorsed him and Thomas Massey endorsed him. They're going to be called rhinos. Are they rhinos? As of everything yeah. to call Ron DeSantis, you call calling him a rhino. I mean, the guy gives six week abortion ban. You see the way what he's taken on these schools, what he's done with the education and curriculum, what he's done with taking on Disney. These seem like Republican and name only issues. I mean, that's that's what his frustration is. But I guess the perfect candidate doesn't show frustration. Is that it?
11: Well, I, I do think we've seen and this is quite a while now we've seen a tendency certainly in Trump world but also among some republicans to um label someone who criticizes trump or who just disagrees with some of trump's policies as a rhino. So in other words to be a republican you have to support trump. And you know, we have Party primaries every four years when there's not an incumbent Republican president, they have party primaries, and they all argue with each other, and they run against each other, and they, and they criticize each other. I mean that's – and they're all Republicans. So uh, I, I think this idea of, of equating uh, criticism of Trump with being a rhino is um, <laughs> obviously very self-serving for Trump, but it's just not true.
3: Right. Uh so so Byron, what would if I interview you, and you I might be on Thursday, what do you think you'll be saying would be the headline projection? Do you put your best Gene Dixon Nostradamus hat on? <laughs> uh I think
11: the I think the headline could be and it won't be a very sexy headline. Muddled picture emerges from first debate. You
5: know, I, think,
11: <laughs> I think a number of the candidates will have, you know, a good moment. You know, right. Vivek Ramaswamy have a good moment. Yeah, he'll have a good moment. You know, DeSantis will have one. I think Nikki Haley will have one. Tim Scott. I, I wouldn't be surprised if everybody has kind of a good moment and they all claim that they were helped by the debate.
3: Go get him. Uh, Byron York is going to be fun. We're finally it's <laughs> finally upon us. Enough speculation. Uh, Byron York, thank you.
11: Thank you,
2: Brian
3: one 408 Your first chance to talk this weekend. You did a lot of listening at the barbecue. Now vent.
2: Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade.
4: This
7: stuff has taken a huge toll on him. You know, Biden, right before the 2020 election, he was right side up, which in our polarized politics is quite astonishing. But look, Trump and Rudy Giuliani began this campaign to try to tarnish Biden, to try to turn him into the Clinton name, you know, with the, with the obsession over, over the Ukraine businesses with Hunter. And it's worked. His numbers now look more like Hillary Clinton 16
3: than Biden 20. Yeah, but it's because we're finding out what Joe Biden was up to. We're not, we're not, uh, you know, we're not, and we're watch, looking at his policies, and that's significant because Chuck Todd said it on Meet the Press. But we've been saying it all along, and he was not above water. He was never 50%. He was above what he is right now, which is 39%. So I asked people to write me, com, and one of them uh, was Fred. Fred writes uh, Jack Smith and Democrats are corrupt, hopelessly, irreversibly corrupt, specifically blind and incapable of a second. A second judgment or either uh, ethical contact. Unfortunately, most of our national media will not report that. Peggy, you'll see on WDBO in Orlando. Hey, Peggy. Hey, Brian. How are you? Great. What's on your mind?
8: Well, listening to Brian York and the way DeSantis, who I'm a fan of, describes him or anybody who um, doesn't want, isn't supporting um, Donald Trump. I voted for him twice, primaries and, and elections. I am not voting for him this time. And if that's what it takes to be a rhino, then there's a whole lot of rhinos
9: out
3: there. Right. I mean, uh, DeSantis is saying, you know, because he's going <laughs> against Trump, people call him a rhino. And the same thing with uh, um, uh, with the same thing with uh, the people that support him. They're being called rhinos. But yet there is con- Chip Roy is as conservative as anybody in the House. Just ask Kevin McCarthy. And it's just a... You're, if you're just calling Ron DeSantis a rhino because he's not supporting Trump, you're not thinking. He's saying don't be an empty vessel, but the quickly, his quick reaction team on the Trump side jumped all over that. Peggy, thanks for the call. Also, this has been an exciting day for us, especially because KTUSC in Tucson, Arizona, will be now part of the uh, Brian Kilmeade Show family. It's Freedom 14, uh, 1400, conservative talk for Tucson. Welcome aboard. You're going to love the ride. You came on at the perfect time. It's debate week. The next uh, this week, going to hear the show on Wednesday, Thursday in Milwaukee.
2: From the Fox News radio studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade.
3: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Special thanks to talk about being here. The KTUC in Tucson, Arizona. We're privileged to be uh, on their station right now, be part of their great lineup. It's Freedom 1400, conservative talk for Tucson, One of the fastest-growing, most important states in this election. Uh, This hour, we're going to be joined by Eric Erickson. Talk about important, what a summit he had over the weekend. Invited everybody except Donald Trump. And all of them came, all the Republican contenders. And he's a, a great talent. He's on WSB, and he's going to be joining us live, so that'll be great. So let's get to, and Michael Goodwin standing by, so let's get to the big three.
2: Now, with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three.
1: This will have been one of the largest strategic errors I've ever seen a prosecutor make. She had, again, the strongest case against Donald Trump on the fake electors. She should have brought that alone, and instead, you know, yeah, but she we're, wanted but, the bigger but, headline. But, but, but.
3: She did. And we'll talk about that. Trump on trial. Has Mark Meadows flipped? Will Georgia trial screw up Jack Smith's prosecution? And will any trial take place before election? We'll break it down with the best.
4: Number two. And I believe that one reason that Hunter was CC'd on those emails where Joe Biden was using a fake name is so Hunter could prove to the Ukrainian oligarch, look, help is on the way.
3: Maybe details on the deal that wasn't for Hunter. Show, it's clearly the whistleblower stopped Hunter from skating. Now, new revelations of VP Biden's aliases email. Could they lead to proof positive he set up Hunter's deals and fired prosecutors more to line his pockets than to help our country?
0: Number one. No one in this country even knew who I was six months ago. And so I'm looking forward to introducing myself to the people.
5: We feel really good going into the debate. I love debates, and I'm looking forward to it.
0: I feel like I've been preparing for this uh,
5: first Republican presidential debate my whole life.
3: Yeah, it's kind of cool. Debate week is here, and who's in and who is out and who chooses to miss. We set the table. We bring you the latest from the trail, and love them or not, we look at over-the-top tax on Governor Ron DeSantis, the latest hit piece from The New York Times. With me right now... Is Michael Goodwin he used to work for the New York Times? Michael, welcome back.
12: Uh, good morning, Brian. Yes, I did my undergraduate work there.
3: <laughs> a lot of people think it's the zenith <laughs> of a career. In retrospect, it gave you a perspective, but you're not as proud as you once were.
12: No, look, I, I think the paper has changed dramatically, and uh, you know, Brian, I, I mean, the the obvious bias, the, the the everything is a propaganda now. Everything is about the agenda, the narrative whether it's race or transgenderism or politics, nothing straight. They they just don't know how to play it straight anymore. That said, I I do think there was a significant report over the weekend, and it was the the Times piece on uh, David Weiss, the U.S. attorney in Delaware, the allegations that he was not going to charge Hunter Biden with any crimes, uh, until the uh, IRS whistleblowers came forward. That is an amazing piece of news. And I give the Times credit. Uh, This is the first real original reporting they have done on the Hunter Biden stuff, and uh, to find something significant like that. And I think this goes to the heart of David Weiss, but it doesn't stop there, Brian because a a very well-connected insider told me a couple of weeks ago that this case would not have stayed, and not all the decisions could be made in Delaware, that the attorney general or his deputy, Lisa Monaco, had to make at least sign off on the deal that was presented to the court. And this person told me also that the FBI was never shown the plea agreement before it was submitted, which was highly unusual, and that if it had been seen by the FBI, the uh, top of the agency would have protested that the deal was too weak. Now, I think these are great questions for uh, Comer and the other Republicans in Congress to ask David Weiss, to ask Merrick Garland, Uh, To ask anybody they can bring, but it seems to me that this entirely undercuts uh, any faith that David Weiss will be a a special counsel in in more than name. He is clearly not to be trusted in this case. He went native. He lives in Delaware. It's looked like he used to work
3: with Bo Biden.
12: Yes, yes, and and I think that you cannot. Have this investigation for five years and come up and say, well, we don't find any crimes. That's what he was prepared to do. No charges. I mean, that is an extraordinary
3: uh, detail that the Times
12: came up with. How about the
3: fact that David Weiss was not even looking into the foreign investments? And the whole problem was just on whether how to use the word resolved or not or concluded on if there's going to be any further investigation. And Leslie Wolf is the one who tipped off. The, the Biden family that they're going to be looking in the guest house ahead of time and said Joe's a no-go. She was later exposed to be a donor to Obama, pulled at the last minute. The guy they put in really knew from Baltimore, knew nothing really about the deal when the judge looked at it and goes, what is this? Yeah, I've never seen anything quite like it either. Well, yeah. what about it? And, it, and next well, thing you know, it, both sides blew it up.
12: Well, and but David
3: Weiss, we know, signed off on. Yes. It. The
12: question, did Merrick Garland also he sign off? He was kept out
3: of it? this story, Michael. Isn't that significant?
12: Isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, it's as though everything happened in Delaware. Something this big, routine, something this big under any administration would not be left to the local U.S. attorney. It would have to be signed off on almost all political indictments are signed off on by the main justice headquarters. And the FBI is given a chance to make its case. So it just doesn't bear any scrutiny whatsoever that David Weiss made this decision alone. And now we know, if if the Times is correct, that he switched courses after the IRS whistleblowers came forward. So that that validates the IRS whistleblowers and everything Both. they said. Yeah,
3: everything. And, and the, yeah. everything they said is right. So now, uh, by the way, they were sniping at each other, the defense uh the defense and uh David Weiss over the weekend they said you know they, it was David Weiss who walked away from the deal. Weiss says you're to blame for the deal and now he had a special prosecutor status. They so did get it to Los Angeles who rejected looking into it, which is where he lives now and D C uh rejected looking into it. So by the time this happens everything goes quiet. Now maybe you can educate me on this Michael. The fact that they didn't indict uh didn't freeze the statute of limitations on anything. So by delaying four or five years, some of these tax reforms are, are, are some of these tax breaches are out of reach. Is that correct?
12: Oh, well, yes. I mean, already, uh, according to the whistleblowers, that uh, they, they let the tax, uh, tax potential tax charges, tax fraud charges from 2013 and 2014. This is, this is the time where Hunter Biden, uh, took some $400,000 from Barisma and classified it as a loan when, in fact, of course, it was payment for being on the board. And there are documents on the laptop, which the IRS whistleblowers, uh, I guess, have seen other documents because they didn't see the laptop, where Eric Swerwin Hunter Biden's partner and sort of what seems to be his tax accountant says to him, this is not a loan. You have to – it's income, and you have to pay taxes on it. Well, he never did. He never did. And so – but with the statute of limitations expiring, that means those $400,000 were untaxed, and there's no penalty. That's what they did by letting the statute of limitations expire on those cases. And you're right, Brian. This, the, the clock is ticking on other years. I mean, uh, that other years could be could fall into the same thing. And the whistleblowers pointed out there was no excuse for this. That the defense had twice extended the statute of limitations, giving them an exemption on the on the uh, timeline. And yet they still let it expire and brought no charges. That's the kind of thing that drove the whistleblowers to come forward. And yet it could happen again. That's why I think the Republicans in Congress really need to sort of go into emergency mode now. David Weiss cannot be trusted to have this case. and I'm not sure how they get him out of it. but. The the idea that he is now going to be a serious special counsel it's a it's a joke and it's playing out before our eyes and I think it speaks to the the fact that Merrick Garland is somewhat cornered here now this has been exposed and so he turns to Weiss again and says we're gonna we're gonna throw another bone we're going but but don't you think knowing what you know
3: now and reading what you read over the weekend. Do you believe that this resonates? This is a paper that he reads. He sees how this, but you put two and two together. He sees how bad Weiss looks now and how bad his move, instead of looking gutsy and courageous and impartial in some circles, now it looks ridiculous in all circles. So do you think that this might actually hit home?
12: Look, I think it's very insignificant, Brian, that the Times did this um because as i said this is their first real original reporting where they've come up with something important and i mean they have extensive sources within the fbi and i mean the whole russia 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 stuff came out of the fbi and they that's what they won their pulitzer for so one of their reporters uh, michael schmidt who was on those uh, Pulitzer teams uh, with the FBI, he's one of the bylines on this story. So they clearly are getting a lot of information from the FBI, which, as I mentioned, uh, I'm told that the FBI is not happy with this, the way this case was handled. They don't believe that this was a good arrangement, that this plea deal was any good but at Michael, all. I, I know what you're saying, but
3: they're the same FBI that just uh, threatened the— a uh, computer repair guy, made him feel as though yes. he made it up, and they also the same FBI that has no interest in following up with Tony Bobolinsky, So they could yes. have really made progress on the foreign business deal. So I don't know what element of the FBI is actually upset.
12: Well, I would I would hazard to guess, Brian, it's the people who were involved in the case, or at least some of them, Okay, that, that they know – that there was more meat there than than David Weiss was was willing to see at the end. That's my guess. I, I could be wrong, but I think the one thing I'm very confident of is that the leadership in the FBI never saw the plea agreement before it was submitted. Now, if you recall, Christopher Wray testified since then, or around then, and was asked about it, and he danced around the question. So I, I think there's a lot that the that uh, the Republicans can get out of the FBI, putting people under oath. Look, I, I, again, when the New York Times does this, instead of just saying, oh, this is a political liability. If you go back months, they were ignoring this or poo-pooing it. Then they moved, and so did the Washington Post, to this posture that this is a continuing liability for Joe Biden's reelection. Now, they're actually doing real reporting at least in this case, right. about what's really going on. And if the White House begins to sense that we've lost the Times, the Times is no longer part of the Praetorian Guard protecting us, then they're going to have to start to scramble. So right. I think this was a, this moment is is potentially pivotal in the whole investigation and in Joe Biden's uh-huh. uh, role in it.
3: I'll mark this spot, but I also want to mark your column uh, real quick on Ron DeSantis. Quote, if there ever was a candidate in desperate need of a miracle comeback, he's the one. The man, and I and many others viewed as the future of the Republican Party, approaches the first presidential primary debate Wednesday as a wounded disappointment. The polls say he's second place behind Trump, but the Florida governor is closer to being toast than he is being the front runner. Why do you say that?
12: Look, uh, obviously the polls are the, are the primary thing. But, but, Brian, you look at what's happening with the other candidates in New Hampshire and Iowa, where they're beginning to gain on him. I mean, he's losing steam everywhere, nationally as well as in the first two states. And if he doesn't win one or even two of the first three states, I don't see how he comes out of this. Uh, You know, that that whole line that how many tickets are there out of Iowa? How many tickets are there? In other words, how many candidates can really emerge to be true candidates, true uh, challengers? Uh, Because the money dries up. And if you don't do well in those early states and, you know, the the pictures of DeSantis, the crowds are small. Uh, The poll numbers show that Tim Scott is getting close to him in both states. And Chris Christie is getting close to him and actually passed him in one poll last week in New Hampshire. Christie has banked everything on New Hampshire. Uh, That's his way out, is if I can win New Hampshire, I'm alive and I'll get money and I'll be strong and it'll scramble the race and people will give me a second look. Uh, DeSantis, you know, had his view, uh, along with most candidates, that Trump's support uh, that about 25% of the Republican Party is solid for Don- Donald Trump, but that the rest of it was soft. It, it, when Trump was at 35, 38% in the polls early this year, his report is the support is soft once you get above 25%. That was the theory of the case. I think that most campaigns had, but now here we are, well into the uh, well into the year first first debate coming up and Trump's support continues to grow. So it's no longer 38%. It's now 55. Yeah. I, one poll had him at 61, I believe. So these numbers are growing. Of course the indictments are a big part of it, but the whole theory that the that the challengers had about being able to peel away soft Trump supporters has been proven wrong so far.
3: Uh, yeah, I guess we'll see. Uh, I think you're right about the polls. I also have never seen a uh, a second-place candidate's attack like this, uh, and I wonder how much that that weighs on him, you know, from the New York right. Times' ridiculous piece on Sunday uh, to yes. Donald Trump's $20 million in ads. Uh, Michael, great column. Love your insight, too, on the New York Times. Uh, thanks so much. Always great. Uh, when we come back, your turn. Then Eric Erickson, the bottom of the hour. It's debate week. So glad you're here. Brian Kilmeade Show.
2: talk show that's real this is the brian kilmeade show
3: hey welcome back everyone 1-866-408-7669 chance to squeeze in a couple of calls matt listen wtkf hey matt over in north carolina hello brian how are you good what's on your mind um, I, I was
8: telling Pete at the beginning of the show, I went out and posted my big, beautiful Trump flag, because I don't care
12: about mean tweets or personality or anything else. If someone cared about personality, I would be fired if my job as vice president of a company. I want to know how the country is run. We know that Trump did good things for his company, and that's my take on it. Well,
3: weren't you happy with Trump? What, what area would you want him to be different the second time if there was a second time?
12: Uh, like not making some people mad about his personality and maybe soften it up a little bit. But uh, we know he did good for the company, uh, the country, I mean.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, if he, I've always said this, Matt. You've probably heard me say it before. If he just said, I'm really upset by the way some of this thing went down, some of these pandemic vote gettings, and I'm upset, I want to recount, I'm going to put my lawyers on it, but I accept the result and I'm going to be back. He would probably not have any opponents. I don't think anybody would have jumped in against it. Maybe some anti-Trumpers like Governor Hogan. That's it. But some things he did made it harder. Taking those documents. No way should he be indicted for it. But taking those documents, having that rally, not stopping them from coming over. You know, that those type of things is stuff that allowed his enemies to mount an attack on him for it. But now he is gaining steam in a way I don't think any Democrat ever thought, including the one behind it, who I really believe is Nancy Pelosi. Eric Erickson next.
2: A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade.
10: One thing is certain about these indictments, and in my mind and my opinion. This trial, despite what dates anybody's asking for or anything else, it is not going to happen before the election. And the Democrats want us to be focused on things like this. So we're not focused on Joe Biden's record. Uh,
3: that is Brian Kemp with Eric Erickson's big meeting over the weekend, uh, big forum where yeah, I found out, Eric, that you did not even invite Donald Trump. I'm not sure he would have come or not. Um, The Eric Erickson Show is on WSP 95.5 FM and 7.50 AM uh, in Atlanta. And, Eric, congratulations pulling off a great event by all accounts. Thank you very much. And, and, yeah, you know, we didn't. His team had made it clear
8: they didn't want to share the stage with any of the other candidates. So we figured there's no point in going through a multi-month rigmarole where we knew they'd ultimately say no. We just went straight to the other candidates.
3: And what, what did you find? Number one, uh, Kemp is probably the most popular, one of the most popular, respected Republicans in the country, certainly most successful. He gave you a couple of answers. Number one, he did not. He, him and Trump have been feuding, but it's really a one-way feud. But he did. That surprised me, his answer. This this is This is not – there's no trial that's going to take place before Election Day.
8: Yeah, you know, people outside of Georgia don't don't realize this. There's a RICO case going on right now, a criminal RICO case in Fulton County led by the same DA. They've been picking the jury since January, and it has fewer defendants than the Trump indictment. And they still haven't finalized the jury to even begin what's going to be a six-month trial. There's literally no physical way for a Trump trial to happen before the election, given how long it's going to take just to pick a jury in the case, a little on all the procedural stuff and and, and the court's backlog with other RICO cases. So he's right about that, and his focus – he actually came back on Saturday and sat on stage with Glenn Youngkin to try to encourage people to do early voting and absentee voting and and win. And uh, a lot of people saw him as presidential candidates. They were very insistent it's not going to happen. I kind of believe them. Both of them? Yeah, both of them. And and they're both really trying to focus on we've got to win in 24, and we probably need to go in a different direction than it looks like we're headed.
3: Which uh, they don't believe Trump can win is what you're saying.
8: Yeah, they they don't. Look, Georgia's problematic. He lost once. Uh, Suburban voters have rejected every one of his candidates that he's endorsed since then. In 2022, every Republican won except the ones that Trump endorsed, which was kind of a big red flag that there's a problem. Now, my argument is the economy might be getting so bad that he's got an opening against Joe Biden, but you would spend more money on him in Georgia than the other candidates would have to spend, which could cost you the Senate.
3: So what was this prosecutor thinking, Uh, I mean, to, to do this? So you know her. Is this the only crime that's ever potentially have taken place in Fulton County? Should she have other focus?
8: Oh, she absolutely should. Listen, regardless of what the campaign did or didn't do, and I'm in the camp that doesn't actually – think it was stolen in Georgia having been an election lawyer. It, it was a dumb case for her to bring. Uh, it's going to overwhelm her office and potentially bankrupt the county. There's no <laughs> way the state of Georgia gives a supplemental uh, money to Fulton County. They're going to have to raise taxes on people. And don't forget, by the way, Fulton County, the northern end, is highly Republican. You get just one of those people on the jury, they could blow up her entire prosecution.
3: So listen with Sarah, is- Sarah Isker. She used to be the DOJ spokesperson for Trump Uh, during the Trump years, but it's turned very anti-Trump. Tell me if this uh, this is basically what you agree to, cut 33.
1: This will have been one of the largest strategic errors I've ever seen a prosecutor make to include defendants she didn't need to include. And then because of that, have her case move from state court, far more prosecution friendly in Georgia than the federal court rules are going to be. Different jury pool, no televised, uh, and you're going to have... A state prosecutor basically having to try this case under state law, true, but with federal procedural rules that she's not familiar with. And for what? She had, again, the strongest case against Donald Trump on the fake electors. She should have brought that alone. And instead, you know, she wanted the bigger headline.
3: And they're talking about Mark Meadows has a legitimate uh, case when he said, I was the chief of staff of the president on January 6th. That's the problem you have with me about what happened after. This should be a federal case, not a Georgia case.
8: A thousand percent, Sarah's right on that. I, I, there is a clear federal statute that anything under the color of, of office could drag them to court. Same with Jeff Clark, by the way, who is a U.S. acting or attorney general or deputy attorney general, and Donald Trump, who is president of the United States. They can get this move to federal court, which expands the jury pool to a massive number of pro-Trump counties in Georgia. They use federal criminal rules of procedure, which Fawny Willis is a, an expert in, and it becomes a much more difficult case For the state prosecutor to prosecute, it also becomes a much more expensive case that Fulton County has to pay for.
3: So tell me about what you discovered when you had a chance to talk to these candidates uh, from Nikki Haley to Tim Scott. You mentioned Youngkin, not a candidate, uh, but he didn't rule it out up until maybe you feel as though he has now. So go yeah. ahead. Okay, What's
8: so Yunkin was was hesitant to even come because he didn't want to be seen as a candidate. They wanted to be on stage with Brian Kemp to make it less plausible. We told him it was a bad idea, and of course, having Yunkin and Kemp on stage, the media was like, "Oh, there's your 2024 ticket." He he really is gun shy about the idea of running. Uh, but Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, Chris Christie, uh, Ron DeSantis, I was stunned by the number of people who didn't realize DeSantis's military background, which tells me he's done a good job highlighting his record in Florida but hasn't told the story of who he is. Tim Scott had a just commanding performance, but still there were a lot of doubts in the room. He had kind of the, the fire in the belly for a nasty campaign. Mike Pence was great but a little subdued. Uh, Nikki Haley – resonated with the audience talking about her husband as a soldier transitioning back into the nation as a civilian and the struggles with our soldiers and the failure of the government uh, and the VA to deal with them. It was kind of a very poignant moment. And then, of course, Chris Christie makes a lot of sense and sounds great on the stage – Uh, But conservatives just don't trust that he's one of them, which is a problem. Uh, And and Vivek Ramaswamy sounded fantastic on stage, had a huge fan club there. Uh, But I still come away with, he's 38 years old. Is this like the Pete Buttigieg phenomenon, but on our side?
3: Uh, Pete Buttigieg, of course, uh, was mayor, a mediocre mayor, where this guy was legitimately a great business person. So, like, Pete, Pete Buttigieg... The spectacular failure after failure. I mean, I cannot yeah, believe that we, we all know the transportation secretary now by name because of how inept he is.
8: Yes, um, but it's just you know the, the phenomenon of young guy stir up the pot, bring young voters in. Uh, we'll see if he can, he can build on that. He he made a persuasive case that we've got to bring young voters to our side, and his message certainly resonated with people. What I did find the most notable thing, Brian, and, and we can all laugh at this, is I was very explicit. I wanted to hear from these candidates why you, not the other guys. What's your big policy vision? What do you understand that you don't know about the job, and how are you going to find out what you need to know? And when they would get off stage, all the media would want to do is, what do you think of the Trump indictments? What do you think about President Trump not coming to the debate? And the crowd loved that they got 45 minutes with these candidates where they actually got to learn about them and their vision, not what they think about Donald Trump, which we all know. Uh, and then the media just was super frustrated. We had some reporters say they didn't even want to cover it unless I was going to ask the candidates on stage about Trump. And I – I just thought we don't know anything about these candidates. Let's hear from them about their vision for the future. I I know. I think it resonated.
3: Uh, I hope so. And here's the thing. Uh, When asked by a CBS poll, what should the debate opponents do with the debate? Ninety-one percent said make a case for yourself. Nine percent say make a case against Donald Trump. What do GOP voters, same poll, want to hear about? 86% the economy, 83% crime, 81% illegal immigration. By standing strong, you're actually helping voters.
8: Yes. Yeah. I mean, listen, we learned so much from these candidates. Uh, We learned about uh, Vivek and and his views on Taiwan. I allowed him to clarify those. They they didn't quite resonate with the crowd. Um, But he was able to make his case. Ron DeSantis had 10 minutes on how he would actually clean up the border and how he sees the military action uh, in, in uh, on the border. Mike Pence got to talk about dealing with the bureaucracy and the fights and how you can clean it up. They, they all got moments to shine. All of them held themselves very well. I'm more interested now in the Fox debate on Wednesday because I see these guys actually do have – Unique, distinct ideas that separate them from each other that we haven't learned so far.
3: So I want you to hear uh, Vivek is ridiculous and win the Ukraine war. And and this was what he said to you. Cut 14.
0: First thing I would do is end the Ukraine war. I will end the Ukraine war on terms that advance American interests. Specifically, freeze the current lines of control like a Korean War armistice agreement. Make a hard commitment that NATO will not admit Ukraine to NATO. And I know not everyone in this audience will agree with me on that. and That's okay. But I want to be clear about why. This will require, as a condition for that deal, Vladimir Putin to exit his military alliance with China. And the Russia-China military alliance is the top threat that we face today. Hypersonic missile capabilities, nuclear capabilities in Russia's hands ahead of the U.S., combined with China's naval capacity ahead of the U.S., and an economy that we depend on for our modern way of life. That alliance is a problem.
3: Is that the dumbest thing you've ever heard? We're going to have Vladimir Putin's word he's not going to have an alliance with China, which he'd yeah, never agreed yeah, to begin with?
0: That – it strikes
8: me as willfully naive. Essentially, you're allowing the Russians to engage in a massive land grab yeah. and, and and then say, okay, we promise, wink, wink, nod, nod, we're not going to work with China with whom we share a border that it's hard for you to monitor. Um, that one wasn't good. And then it's the, the same with Taiwan that once we get our superconductor capabilities and semiconductor capabilities out of Taiwan, we'll allow China to invade them. Um, that's going to completely disrupt the Western alliance if we were to do that. And some people may think that's fine, but uh, we're essentially negotiating a surrender with China.
0: Yeah, let's hear that. Cut 12. Most important foreign policy objective for the next U.S. president to declare economic independence from China, to deter China from going after Taiwan for so long as we rely on Taiwan for our semiconductors while avoiding war in the process that'll be a major accomplishment of the next us president and it will not be simple right uh and then let them take taiwan and who cares
8: yeah it's just we're, we're keep them from invading taiwan until we get our semiconductor technology out of that that's just that's really bad in a lot of profound ways because it does signal that we don't keep our word. And what do we do with South Korea, Japan, and even Australia that are... De- and the Philippines now, and even Vietnam, that really are looking for us to try to deter China. This isn't deterrence, it's kind of
7: capitulation.
3: Here's Chris Christie on crime, cut eight.
7: It's unacceptable, and it's unacceptable morally to me, that people are afraid to walk the streets, to go to the supermarket, to go and pick up their dry cleaning, because they're scared. And so if if these... You know, liberal prosecutors in these cities are unwilling to prosecute this crime, which they are. I will appoint an attorney general and my first instruction to him or her will be the federal government will prosecute those violent crimes in those cities until the cities wake up and do it themselves.
3: So, I mean, absolutely something people care about, right? That went over well and he's got credibility as a former prosecutor.
8: He does. He actually started with education and made a persuasive case on how you as, as president, even though it's a state-level issue, can fundamentally disrupt teachers' unions, which resonated strongly with the crowd. And then this, it sounded honestly to me like he was running for attorney general. He – even the RICO case in Georgia, and we've got a situation with Antifa rioters in Atlanta using RICO against them. He makes a profoundly strong case for a strong attorney general cracking down on crimes where liberal prosecutors will not.
3: People want to talk about Mike Pence separating from the president on January six. He's like, it's not just there. Cut five.
5: President Biden's policy on uh, reforming entitlements in this country is insolvency. Uh, and the former president's position is identical to Joe Biden's position. They won't even talk about common sense reforms of Social Security and Medicare for younger Americans. And as you know, I'm, I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it. Uh, and I see uh, not only the former president, but others on the stage trying to relegate the question of abortion to a state's only issue. Uh, and I want people to know my long record being a champion for the right to life.
3: So, I mean, he he separates three different areas where he wants to see Trump on stage. How was that received?
8: It was actually received to a degree very well. Um, I mean, the, the crowd, al- almost everyone in the crowd had been two-time Donald Trump supporters, and they're they're just kind of exhausted, even though they still like him. Uh, they appreciated Pence's convictions on those issues. I mean, he—he, he, uh, the one thing I was surprised, though, Brian, is I asked him pretty point blank. Uh, you keep talking about the accomplishments of the Trump administration, which Mr. Vice President raises the question, why should people pick you instead of the president of that administration? He kind of whiffed the answer, which I was surprised he didn't have a strong answer on
3: it. Interesting. So, Eric, your big takeaway was, do you think these are a talented group?
8: Yeah, I, I, we have an extremely impressive group of people who shouldn't have to live in Donald Trump's shadow, and they won't have to on the debate stage for Fox.
3: If I was to ask Eric Erickson on Monday who's going to be the number one uh, candidate we'll be talking about who did best on th- uh, after Wednesday night on Thursday, what would you tell me?
8: I would say if it's not DeSantis, his campaign has real problems.
3: So the pressure on DeSantis to be uh, to, to kill it as he has yeah, center square. I,
8: he's, he's got to. I mean, he's the only one in double digits other than Trump, but he's starting to hit a fundraising plateau. He needs to revitalize his campaign. And he's got a great opportunity with Fox on Wednesday.
3: Eric, you saw your reputation uh, showed itself this weekend as everybody showed up. Uh, congratulations. And thanks so much for sharing your the aftermath report. Thank you so much. All right. Eric Erickson over in Atlanta. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade show. Don't move. I'm going to be back with your calls. And, uh, and as you can also write me, Brian uh, Just click on comments and then I'll get them
2: and read them. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade.
7: The Democratic Party, like Tim Wallace, they're rallying around Joe Biden in part because they believe that that's the safe play. That's three yards in a cloud of dust, to use a seasonal metaphor, (laughs) Chuck. But what if that actually is the riskier option? Uh, You showed those numbers right there. Uh, The Democratic Party thinks that Biden is the safe play. Just hope for the best. We'll get through the next 14 months. I'm not so sure that that, that's it.
3: So Jonathan Martin there, I think from The Washington Post, he's not there as the right-wing voice on Meet the Press. And he's seeing problems, same way the New York Times sees problems. We've been seeing problems, my goodness. The president slurred his way through a summit, which is significant. South Korea and Japan have been bitter rivals, even though they're both democracies. But their common enemy, China, has brought them together. And to Biden's credit or his staff's credit, they throw an opportunity to go do it. They barely even publicized it, didn't educate anybody on the significance of it. And that goes by. He doesn't really seem tuned. People like Jonathan Martin, clearly anti-Trump guys, uh, and not, not righty, brought up those things about Joe Biden. Is he really the safe play? He went on to say this, cut 18. He's actually from Politico.
7: Biden's staff can't yeah. even get to the president yeah. about the issue because they don't want to address a sensitive topic with the president. They've got a challenge. So like, I think Biden has basically got three issues where he's not figured out what to say. OK, One is obviously the questions mm-hmm. about Hunter Biden, his son. The other is what to say about the investigations into Donald Trump. And the third is about his age. Those are three massive issues that are sort of clouding his reelection oh. campaign, and he's not figured out what to say about
3: it. And the thing is, I think he knows what to say about his age, and it's not good. He wants to say, I have a lot of experience. Well, I mean, you don't look sharp, and you look older than your age, and you're 80. Number two, about Hunter Biden, what can you say? It leads to him. Jonathan Martin doesn't understand it leads to him. In some way, shape, or form, he was hands-on on those deals. I mean, the meetings in the restaurants have been confirmed, the calling in to the same meetings in in uh, Doha, that's what he can't say. And about Donald Trump, his hands are all over it. But if he starts talking about it, it'll look like Joe Biden's Department of Justice is going after his chief opponent. So he knows the answers. That's the problem. He does not want to be forced to give those answers. That's what I think the issue is. Brian Kilmeade Joe, Keep it here.
2: From higher to top five. By- News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade.
3: Hi, boy! Welcome to the latest moment to the Brian Kilmeade show. So glad you're here. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. I know challenging with uh, weather conditions over in California. Challenging weather conditions over in Hawaii as they try to uh, regroup after that devastating fire. Uh, off the hurricane, and the President of the United States twice said no comment today. He'll be in Hawaii. You know, realize we do have 50 states. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, meanwhile, there's a lot to discuss. This is debate week. Four indictments for Trump and he will not come. The first debate officially in many people's view, including mine, really kicks off the debate, uh, the uh, political season with Iowa five months away. So let's get to the big three.
2: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three.
0: Number three.
1: This will have been one of the largest strategic errors I've ever seen a prosecutor make. She had, again, the strongest case against Donald Trump on the fake electors. She should have brought that alone. And instead, you know, she wanted the bigger headline.
3: uh, Sarah Isgore cannot believe what the Georgia prosecutor did. Trump on trial. Has Mark Meadows flipped? Will Georgia State trial screw up Jack Smith's prosecutions? I should say persecutions. Will any trial take place before the election? Number two. And I believe that
4: one reason that Hunter was CC'd on those emails where Joe Biden was using a fake name is so Hunter could prove to the Ukrainian oligarch, look, help is on the way.
3: Details on the deal that wasn't for Hunter shows clearly the whistleblowers stopped Hunter from skating. Now, new revelations about VP Biden's alias email. Could they lead to proof positive? He set up a lot of Hunter's deals within the middle of all of it, including firing prosecutors and maybe selling out the country.
5: Number
0: one. No one in this country even knew who I was six months ago. And so I'm looking forward to introducing myself to the people.
5: We feel really good going into the debate. I love debates, and I'm looking forward to it. I feel like I've been preparing for this uh, first Republican presidential debate my whole
3: life. Wow, debate week is here, and who is in, who is out, and who chooses to miss. We set up, we set the table, bring you the latest from the trail, and love them or not, look at the -the over-the-top tax on Governor Ron DeSantis, the latest hit piece in the New York Times. With me right now is uh, is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, best-selling author, former U.S. Uh, pri- attorney for Southern District of New York. Uh, Andy, welcome back.
6: Brian, great to be with you. Happy Monday.
3: Uh, same to you. So far, no indictments. People are saying there might be something in Arizona. The governor denies it, but it looks <laughs> like we're we're for and done right now. And this is going to have the dramatic scene of the president of the United States surrendering before Friday. If you were him, uh, how would you do it?
6: Well, it's a lot of a lot of it's out of his control um, because of the security considerations. It's got to be coordinated between the Secret Service. And I I would, Brian, I would prioritize safety always because I just, you know, I've, I've been through too much where, you know, things go wrong. So. Um I, I would try to do it in a way that was as safe as possible for him and for, you know, the the security detail. Um I if I were he, I would probably um do it maybe Wednesday. You know, I if he has the choice of doing it, you mean Wednesday, try to trump think, try to
3: trump the debate?
6: Yeah, because I think that both Trump and the Biden administration for different reasons, um have have kind of the same strategy here, which is that these polit these criminal proceedings freeze the other candidates. I mean, basically they can't get traction. They have to talk about Trump all the time. And even, you know, with with all the work that I'm sure Brett and Martha have done to you know, come up with questions that press these candidates on what their positions is, are and what their vision for the country is, which is the important thing. If Trump were to surrender on Wednesday, it'd be hard to, it would be like a titanic event that it would be very hard to ignore. And once again, he takes all the oxygen out of the room. So I, I imagine if I could orchestrate it uh, as he could or uh, as he may be able to, that's what I would do. But I would always prioritize safety because these things can, you know, Things could go badly
3: wrong. Uh, Let's hope he doesn't do that. Uh, The bitterness he would create, I think, would be uh, a lot, but he's used to that. Uh, Chuck Rosenberg is a former senior FBI official on Meet the Press. He said this about the prosecutor's case in Georgia. Cut 31.
8: On one hand, um, I've read if it gets to trial, it's almost an easier guilty verdict than what Jack Smith's trying to do. But is it harder to get this case to trial?
11: If it remains at 19 co-defendants, sure, that's cumbersome. But we all know as prosecutors that that number often narrows. Mm -hmm. Many people who are indicted are better off if they plead guilty and cooperate because there are incentives built into all of our systems to do that. So, A, if they go to trial with 19, that's a big, complex,
3: cumbersome case. But, B, I don't expect that will happen. I expect it to narrow What do you expect, Andy?
6: Well, I think the RICO case is ridiculous, you know, the RICO count. She tried to – you know, she's got a bunch of disparate schemes, Brian, and what she tried to do was write an indictment that was the January 6th committee's – the House committee's version of events, which is this, you know, claim that really is not factually supported, that there was one big multifaceted scheme here – uh, that that Trump was, uh, you know, in a mastermind kind of fashion, weaving in the background with all these different uh, layers to it. And it had our democracy hanging by a thread. And none of that was true. What you have here are a bunch of half-baked schemes by people who probably didn't know each other existed or what each other was doing in a lot of these instances. So I think the, the RICO is going to fall by the wayside. I do think it's likely the case is going to get Removed to federal court. Wow. And some some smart judge, I think, will basically tell her to cut it into smaller pieces and he'll be he or she, the judge, will be doing her a favor uh, if that happens, because he should have been if he was going to be charged, it should have been like on the fake electors scheme. And there's one count that alleges that um, he and John Eastman filed a false pleading in federal court. Uh, and they have some emails showing that the, they must have been aware that some of the things they were saying, to you know, in the way of uh, the number of irregular votes, were very dodgy. So, you know, there's a couple of things in there that he's got to to really be concerned about, but it should have been a much smaller case. And if she actually wanted to get to trial quickly, she she should have brought it that way, and she could be in she could be on trial early next year if she had done it that way. Right.
3: I mean, look, like Dan Abrams said uh, last week on ABC, he's like, you know what? I don't even think they need to bring that case. They already have a lot of these charges with Jack Smith's case. She should say, get out of the way. She would not hear of it, did her photo shoot and had her big press conference, which mysteriously she rushed on Monday a week ago, yesterday, a week ago, today. But, uh, Andy, and the other thing, if it goes to a federal court, the judge, the, the president theoretically would have a better shot because Georgia is more red when you get outside Fulton County, right?
6: Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, the other thing, though, Brian, is the reason I think uh, I disagree with the, the people who say, like Chris Christie said this as well, that she shouldn't have charged because Jack Smith did it. Smith is going to have trouble with his charges because he he has stretched some federal statutes to try to cover election behavior, which weren't designed to deal with elections. Whereas I agree with all the people who say that Fannie, Fannie Willis has partisan motives here. But at the same time, it's the states that conduct elections. So she has an array of election law statutes to rely on that Smith doesn't. So I don't blame her for bringing the case. I blame her for the way she brought the case, which I think is incompetent. But I, I could it's, it's you can't say that she didn't have a law enforcement purpose to do this.
3: Uh, OK, I mean, she could do it. But if it but if you already she had to does she include in her case uh, what have happened in other states?
6: She does because you're allowed to prove the background of the I mean, look, she does it because she's doing this big ridiculous RICO. But even if she had pled the case properly, you would be able to get some evidence in that Trump had an overarching scheme to, to not only cancel out Georgia but a bunch of other states. She'd get she'd get to prove that uh, in the trial because I think Georgia was not the only um slate of electors. They were you know, they were trying to stand up slates of electors in in different contested states. So you'd be able to get that in in a normal trial as kind of background to the scheme. But right. she should have just charged that scheme, not a RICO. I mean, Trump, Trump is not Don Corleone. You know, this is like... Well, I thought so. It's a so. much more... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. much more modest case than she charged.
3: So, I mean, what about the timing? I mean, do you, do you believe... Brian Kemp went on to say, I'm not going to play it now, but he just oh. said that I don't think any of these cases are going to take place before Election Day. Do you believe that?
6: Well, her case can't take place before Election Day if she tries to make it a 19 defendant case. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. What about the others? Um, So I think the best chance of getting to trial um, is probably the Jack Smith, D.C. case. I don't think Alvin Bragg wants to take that piece of dog uh, breakfast (laughs) to trial. Um, And I think – so the best chance of getting to trial are Smith's two cases. I think the, the classified documents case, in my experience, those are very hard cases to get to trial because there's a lot of pretrial litigation, including potential pretrial appeals, about what uh, evidence has to be declassified. And doesn't everyone um,
3: need this high classification in order to look at the material yes. that Jack Smith has?
6: That's a great point because now he's added one defendant and three counts, right? Every time he adds a new defendant, they, you got to get a new lawyer who got, has to get a security clearance. So. Uh, That's going to slow up the works. I think Smith got a very good draw from the District of Columbia court in Judge Chutkin. She's going to be a very sympathetic uh, judge. And I think for that reason, if he's in a hurry to get to trial, she seems to be like, in addition to predisposed uh, one way, she also seems like a no-nonsense person in court. Um, If she wants to get to trial in the the spring, she could probably get to trial in the spring. Uh, Trump won't like it. And I wouldn't do it. I think, you know, it's not fair to let Smith have 31 months to to put a case together or the Justice Department to have 31 months. And then Trump gets, you know, comparatively five minutes to get ready for trial. But, um, you know, he's in front of a friendly judge. You may have. So so ABC ABC
3: News got this leak. Uh, Evidently, ABC News has reviewed a draft of Mark Meadows' book that describes Trump talking about the document, allegedly in a four page war plan prepared by uh, Mark Milley. They went on to say in the book that Simpson modified on the couch in front of the president's desk. There's a four page typed up Mark million by Mark Milley himself. It shows the general's own war plan to attack a war plan to attack Iran. Uh, when President Trump found this plan in his old files in the morning, he pointed out that making these, these class making these classified would probably win his case. But these words do not appear in the final version of the book. According to sources, Meadows told investigators he directed that reference to Trump possessing a classified war plan to be taken out because it could be problematic. So, again, more about Mark Meadows' book, not even the version that we saw. They went into the Twitter drafts, and they're going to Mark Meadows, uh, I guess, um, uncorrected proof to find something on Trump. Your thoughts about the amount of damage and the leak that once again gets out.
6: Well, yeah, the, the leak that gets out is bad, no matter what. Um, I found when I was doing high profile cases, Brian, that that was like, it's impossible to control. There's too many people. Who well, know you know, you can control, control
3: it with the thing. Biden. We don't get many leaks out of the Biden investigation. They're very good about that.
6: Well, except we got, look what we got over the weekend. I mean, we got all their email and everything else, right? So No, I'm talking and, about these
3: classified get, documents. Oh, no, no, no. I, I I
6: get what you're saying. But what what I what I would say is that this is what prosecutors do. Um, and what would be important is what would Meadows say under oath? I mean, that's the thing that ends up mattering, regardless of what is in the draft of his book and the published version of his book. The only thing that's of importance is what would he say under oath? You know, what was what 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 actually factually happened? Um, you know, I don't think anybody's very interested in how his book came to be his book. But the issue is, what what would his testimony be? Did that document exist? Did Trump mm. have the document? That's what, and you want to know what he'd say under oath,
3: right? You could always say, "Well, this is what the book says." Go, yeah, that's why I fixed it. Uh, well, that's what to say. I don't even know where that came from. Or, oh,
6: yeah, the, but you know, you get you get you, you invite a lot of trouble when you start like telling a dodgy story in connection with something where other people know what actually happened. I mean, and he's got. But by the way, Mark Meadows has uh, George Terwilliger, who was an excellent lawyer used to be a justice department official under bar in the uh, bush 41 administration uh he's not going to let him lie so he's going to be well represented and um you know i don't i i just think he would um he he would not go in there and tell a story that would blow up on him i think under oath he'd have to say what happened
3: gotcha all right Andy mccarthy don't join the trump legal team i need you here all right you got it. Right. You'll
6: pay, right?
3: So mm, I, I wish I could. I can't answer you right now. I got to go to break. I wish I had time. Uh, yeah, right. You're not about the money. You're about experience. right oh, right, right. I, I
8: knew I wasn't
6: about the money. I
3: could tell that. <laughs> Andy McCarthy, thank you. At the bottom of the hour, we talk about all these uh, these uh, climate challenges and the weather challenges with Joe Bestorti, co-chief meteorologist at Weather Bell. He's also a legend. Also, special thanks to KTUC in Tucson, Arizona. You're now part of the Brian Kilmeade Show family. We appreciate it, and we appreciate having Freedom 1400 uh, as part of the team, and to be, uh, we're honored to be part of your lineup. Don't move.
2: Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. First of all, he's been one of the most
7: highly effective presidents we've ever seen. I sat in Congress for 12 years waiting for infrastructure week. He actually delivered on this. And look, Dean is a friend of mine. I love him. But I spent last weekend on Mackinac Island with Tony Evers and Gretchen Whitmer talking about how we're going to make sure that we win this for Joe Biden. Because this is not a debate. About Joe Biden's age or experience, it's about a debate about protecting the democracy. You just heard probably the most reasonable of the Republican candidates not give you a single answer on things. It's about recruiting jobs back into Minnesota. It's about being able to feed our children. So, uh, yes, I do believe the president is the best one. I believe he has delivered, and his record shows that. And anything other than that is, is simply distraction.
3: Okay, so that is Tim Waltz. He's going to be one of the big surrogates for for President Biden because he President Biden can't really campaign. So he was strong, but he was also way inaccurate. Governor Bergham got on the air and was asked six, seven questions from Chuck Todd all about Trump and all his different indictments. And what he did is accept it and then would call, try to talk about issues. And they get ripped by Chuck Todd for not answering about Trump. And then this guy comes on and says, Doug Bergram, he's a friend, he's a reasonable guy, and he won't answer any of your questions. And it's all about the economy. If the guy would just ask a question about the economy, about immigration, about world affairs, the Ukraine war— That's all these men and women want to do. They don't want to talk about Trump. You come on and talk about Trump the whole time. Chuck Todd even followed up and said, in fairness, I only asked him about Trump. I didn't ask him about those other things. And you're ridiculing him for parroting, parrying, P-A-R-R-Y-I-N-G, parrying to a different topic. And I'm going to play that uh, when I get back, too, uh, before I let you go. Because I'm going to talk about this so everything's climate change when it comes to a tropical storm in California, a hot summer, uh, what happened, the fires in Hawaii, Joe Bastardi's next. But I found it just astounding, number one, that nobody asked and said how bad it looked or condemned Joe Biden for taking the easiest questions ever. Any message for the people of Hawaii and Maui, Maui away. He had no comment. Twice he said it. No public comments for 72 hours. And then they say that he's been in constant contact with people behind the scenes, FEMA and everything. Does anyone buy that? We watched him shirtless on the beach again. Take it a long week, weekend again. And refuse to take questions from the bike when he rides by. How insulting, by the way. And then when he got into his SUV. Listen to the Brian me show. Man, I mean, we have a lot to talk about. I got more sound bites to play, too. Don't move.
2: Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
13: If we don't keep the temperature from going above 1.5 degrees Celsius raised, then we're in real
10: trouble.
7: That's what's boiling the oceans, creating these atmospheric rivers and the rain bombs and sucking the moisture out of the land and creating the droughts and melting the ice and raising the sea level.
9: Climate change is the crisis of our lifetime. We have an obligation to future generations to make sure that we have a planet for them
1: to live on.
3: Hey, welcome back. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the fires in Hawaii and are horrified by it and can't believe a tropical storm hit California, but also they also had a very wet winter, uh, which you'd think they would be celebrating. Nobody celebrates a storm, but, they, the, but the winter was fine. But that's climate change. Bob, uh, everything's really cold. Everything's really hot. It rains a lot. Everything's climate change. But what's the reality? Joe Bastardi, co-chief of meteorologist at Weatherbell, joins us now. He's been doing this for his life. In fact, his whole family's been doing it. His dad was doing this before him. So, Joe, how do you make sense of some of the things that are happening right now? Do you find it very odd, some of the things I've been saying about hot summer, tropical storm hits California, palms, including Palm Springs?
13: Uh, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, um, most of the country uh, so far in the heart of the summer has been below normal, the extreme heat has been uh, from Arizona through Texas, Louisiana, and across the south. But there's a wide swath from the western part of the United States all the way into the east, including New York City, has been below normal this summer uh, for the heart of the season. And uh, since I work in the energy industry, it's very important that you hit those forecasts because uh, you have to do cooling degree days and uh, the amount of energy that is used. You see, I, I have to make a forecast for this stuff and not just rely on hyperbole, And uh, just running to where the weather is going to be extreme because there's always something happening somewhere. I mean, if you've been looking at this as long as I have and uh, studying some of the stuff my dad was showing me in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you'd be saying, like, wow, uh, it's not as bad as it used to be, and it's not. Um, But, uh, you know, the California thing was very interesting. Man, from last Tuesday – you know, it's kind of funny, Brian. I had – you know, I blogged for CFACT, and I had a, a, a blog on nine days in advance of Ian saying, attention, Governor DeSantis. That was the, the, it was just a little blob of clouds near Barbados. Well, to to make sure that I play equally, on Tuesday on Twitter, I said, attention, Governor Newsom. And this is when uh, the cloud mass that was not yet Hillary was coming off the coast, but you could see what was going going to happen with it because it was textbook. And what we did was this, folks. We analoged it to Kathleen in 1976. There was a hurricane, came right up through Baja, tropical storm. Into uh, into Southern California, it actually uh, had the highest wind, sustained wind ever at Yuma, Arizona, fifty-seven miles an hour for one minute at Yuma. Did $176 dollars of damage. So you know what I was telling my clients? Instead of just going back and forth with the with the oh well, this is going this way and that way, I said, look, here's what you do: take that storm. Okay, in today's dollars, it's worth. $950 million. The infrastructure increase, if you know what the infrastructure increase, if this storm is capra- uh, comparable to Kathleen, we should have a $1.5 billion storm. And so what happens is this, the way I can judge the metric of how bad this storm is, is I'll wait for all the insurance to come in and say, well, if it's $1.5 to two $2 billion, it was Kathleen in 1976, because that's what that storm did the thirty nine tropical storm, which hit up north in Santa Monica, actually did make landfalls a tropical storm, but up to the north, we had six tropical storms, including a hurricane that impacted California in the eighteen hundreds and of the last twenty uh, out of the last forty uh, storms that have dumped um, have impacted California, tropical cyclones because they die and come up sometimes um, twenty six of them We're during El Nino season since 1950. Guess what? It's an El Nino season. What do you think is going to happen? And so it's like what I find is the thing that I could give an advantage to folks is I know what happened before. And it's really weird watching the weather media today because they just all parrot each other. Why don't you show something that puts it in perspective before the other guy sees it? And then perhaps you can come up with a different angle, so viewers or listeners or whatever will come to you because it's all out there. It's all out there for you to see if you look.
3: So is the is the planet heating up, and are we responsible? Oh yeah, we. This is this is yeah, and it's and I've been I've been
13: all over this for the last 30 years. We've had an increase in underwater volcanic activity, which has warmed the oceans everybody wants to sweep it under the table. I call it Hunter Biden laptop meteorology. where Oh no, just ignore that over there. Don't worry about that. But uh, you know I I put together PowerPoints and show people that from the 1950s to the 1980s even as CO2 was rising like mad there was no increase in the sea surface temperatures. It all began in the 90s and has really escalated because of the cumulative buildup of heat from geothermal effects. There's an increase in underwater volcanic activity and that of course releases water vapor into the air because the oceans warm and then of course water vapor uh, leads to the warming that you're you're seeing now. But uh, you know I suspect the same thing was going on in the medieval warm period and some of the other climate optimums. That's what we're in folks, a climate optimum if you actually look at the geological time scale because life thrives when it gets a little bit warmer like this. And so I suspect that was going on before. Now, what I see happening is, and, you know, the weather is so linked. It's so linked. The, the, you know, carbon dioxide, people go, well, it's a heat-trapping gas. No, it's not. You know what it does? It has radiative properties that back-radiate into the atmosphere, and it tries to warm the atmosphere. All right? So, with that, you know, we had the big introduction in the gotcha. 50s. There should have been some response. I just a lost second. It only penetrates a millimeter of the water. So where do you think the warming of the ocean is coming from? Something that has penetrates a millimeter or something from below or the sun? Which, just think about
3: that. It would have to be from below, but no one ever brings that up. Well, I know.
13: And that, you know what? It's, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, I, I've, uh, when I started speculating on this, after the El Nino 15, 16, I said, okay, now they have to see what's going on. Right now, the guys on the other side. And actually, there was an AP article that says scientists examining other reasons for warming. And they're starting, to, they're starting to do that. But it's going to be a drip, drip, drip type thing, just like you see in other things, folks. I'll tell you what, it's, it's mind-boggling. I'm 68. I can't believe the weather. The weather from something I love since I was three has been dragged into the same sewer that we see across the board. And that's what it is to me, a sewer.
3: Here's the governor of Hawaii. I got to get you on this. Cut 40.
6: Climate change is here. We are in the midst of it with a hotter planet and fiercer storms. Right. And you asked the question, I'm coming back to it right now. Do I wish those sirens went off? Of course I do. And I think that the answer that the um, the emergency administrator from Maui, who's resigned, said was, of course, utterly unsatisfactory uh, to the world. Uh, but it is the case that that we've historically not used those kind of warnings for
13: fires.
3: So this governor, Josh Green, says it was really unseasonably dry because of climate change and the whole no, island blew it, up because it, of the climate change.
13: It was a bit drier than normal. It's a bit warmer than normal in Hawaii. OK, is New York City's New York City has not had an official heat wave this summer, Brian. I know I'm three living. Days in a row, right? Okay. So is that climate change too? Is the coldest May, June, and July on record in the Arctic climate change? You've got you to understand something. And I wrote the book, The Weaponization of Weather and the Phony Climate War. That's exactly what they're doing. The governor of Hawaii, if he was, his National Weather Service in Honolulu, nailed this forecast Tuesday night. Their discussion was talking about the extreme northeasterly trade winds that were going to develop, which happened. On Hawaii from time to time, it wasn't the hurricane way to the south. That was a pinprick, for goodness sakes. But the Weather Service Tuesday night nailed the strong winds with forecasting damaging winds. It just so happened all these fires went off, right? Now, why did the fires go off? Well, it could have been power lines. It wasn't lightning. It could have been a campfire. But that's not climate change. And having something that happens in Hawaii Two or three times, that's why they have high wind warnings on Hawaii sometimes. You see, the same thing for those of you uh, so, ever been to Aruba. Uh, you know, you're saying sure. it's a sunny day, the wind's blowing 50 miles an hour. You say, what the heck is going on here? You get those kind of trade wind situations and certain weather situations. They've been occurring since time eternal. OK, so, you know, and what the, what these people do is they either don't know what has happened before or they have an agenda that prevents yep. them from looking so they can push it. And that's what I, that's my conclusion after 50 years doing this.
3: And, you know, I was talking to Michael Schellenberger on One Nation over the weekend. and He yeah. says, if you really care about the environment, it'll be nuclear and natural gas.
13: Amen. Amen. You know, I've just put together that. Do you know? Do you know this? this you, know, you want to plumb the depths of dumb that, you know, Montana is a carbon negative state even Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, we have 5 billion trees, each ridding us of 50 pounds of carbon dioxide. That's 250 billion pounds of carbon dioxide. We only admit 156 billion. So we are technically a carbon carbon dioxide negative state based on emissions versus the amount the trees are taking out. I said that on Tucker a couple of years ago. Would, I said, you plant a lot more trees, nuclear power. We also have point of Point of capture, point of combustion carbon capture now. But these people, it's not about this. See, that's the thing is it, you can undress them and say, okay, let's build five new nuclear power plants. What, why can't we do that? I got to tell you something, folks. I am an old, greeny, lefty environmentalist, okay? I I'm a Kennedy Democrat. I tell people this all the time. You are plastering mountains with solar panels and wind turbines. It's unbelievable. What you're literally doing is you're chopping down trees that are nature's natural carbon scrubber, and you're replacing them with these things. Now, I've got nothing against solar or wind as as a supplement. It's like taking glutamine if you're a bodybuilder. It's not going to be your main diet. But what they're trying to do is, I believe, is to... Is a listen, I got to believe because of what electricity prices are going to do. All right, it's going to launch you into a situation where you're not capable of doing whatever you want to do as a free person. So, yeah, we'll see. Who knows? Uh, God knows I don't,
3: right? Uh, and thank goodness that somebody in the weather business admit they're not God. Uh, Joe Bestorty, co-chief meteorologist, uh, yeah,
13: that's the greatest lesson of meteorology, it's brought me closer to God. Because it's taught me humility, and I tell that to people all the time. And the majesty, of the atmosphere—the more I know, the less I know. That's how that's how I look at it. So <laughs> glad you brought that up. Right. God
3: bless you. Enjoy the
13: weather. It's the only weather you got.
3: And if you want to follow uh, Joe at uh, at Big Joe Bistardi. go get him, Joe. Thank you. God bless you, Bye. All right, back with more to know. This is the Brian Me Joe, and now you do know more.
2: Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
6: There are things you can run on. I'm a little confused by the whole bionomics thing because you're trying to convince people of something. You're trying to convince them their own impressions about the economy are wrong. And so if you look, for example, at how Hispanic and black voters feel about the economy, they'll tell you it stinks. Now, they can keep saying, but we have the CHIPS Act,
9: but we have the IRA. At the end of the
6: day, you can't convince someone that they're feeling, how they're feeling about the economy is wrong. And that's what this election is going to come down to. And I get that they're trying to present a proactive message. But at the end of the day, it's very difficult, I think, to do that when people feel they simply feel differently.
3: Uh, That's the Hoover Institute's uh, Lonnie Chen, who worked and was a who is head of Mitt Romney's election campaign, just talking about the mystery of but running on Bidenomics when you have a low uh, job, you have uh, low unemployment. I got it. You added jobs, a lot of them coming off the pandemic. You're incorrectly stating what's happening with the deficit. It's actually was last year before the pandemic. It was about eight hundred and fifty billion dollars. This year, it is $1.5 trillion, and he says it's coming down. It's not. It's way overdone. And now all the spending he signed on, on and created, or the Senate created, he signed off on it, is now coming to fruition. We don't have that money, and people aren't benefiting from that. And guess what? With interest rates at 7.5% to get a house, now I'm not. nobody's selling. Uh, nobody's selling a house that they have a 3% mortgage on to get another one with 7%. And a lot of people aren't buying because they can't get a mortgage for less than 7%. That's more than they budgeted. So the ripple effects are pretty obvious. Let's find out if there's even more to know.
2: More to know.
3: Get this. An American-owned tanker is offloading oil. What's the big deal? It's in Texas. It is Iranian oil. The ship tracking data analyzed the AP showed the Marshall Islands flag, Suez Rajan, began the hours-long trip to ship's transfer of its oil to another tanker, at MR Euphrates, right near Galveston, some 70 kilometers off the southeast of Houston. The fate of the cargo ship has become mired in the wider tensions between the U.S. and Islamic Republic. Iran's been trying to evade sanctions to continue to sell its oil abroad, while the U.S. and its allies have been seizing cargoes since 2019. We'll see where that goes. Next, scientists working in Peru to have named a new species of snake after Harrison Ford in honor of Indiana Jones. What a relief. The new snake uh, is in the jungle mountains of Atishi National Park, San Marcos National University. It was not until now that researchers concluded it was indeed a previously unknown species. The creature is a yellowish-brown color with black spots and a black belly and copper eyes. And they're thinking it reminds them of Harrison Ford. Uh, I found out that Harrison Ford agreed to have his name via consultation with the Conservationist International Mode. So congratulations, Harrison. You got yourself a snake. Next. This is something you should keep paying attention to. Beset by domestic economic woes, China's President Xi visits South Africa. His second trip abroad, its whole BRIC team, you know, those guys like India, Venezuela, Russia, uh, the not the U.S. They meet with South Africa and they talk in Brazil and they talk about what a great global trade agreement they have. Uh, and they're going to have... Um, they believe they control 40% of the global population, and they're to be reckoned with. The problem with China is losing a lot of steam because their economy is cratering big time. There's nothing left to build, and people can't get jobs, especially young people. Next. Democratic lawmaker plans to move forward with a four day work week, but the, here's the key it's not a 40 hour work week from four days, it's 32 hours. They think it's going to make them more productive. This is Congressman uh, Ronnie Green. Good luck with that, Ronnie. As a state legislature, is anti-American. If you want to do a four-day work week, that's 32 hours. That's part-time work. And I don't think you should get workers' comp, nor should you get unemployment. Uh, next. Burger King cook, who hasn't missed a work day in 27 years, has got a GoFundMe page of $400,000 in donations. His name is Kevin Ford. He worked as a cook and cashier in the Las Vegas airport. Went viral last year after he posted on TikTok celebrating his 27 years of work without calling in sick or missing any time. That is awesome. People really respect that. Uh, I got to say this. Even light drinking isn't good enough to prevent type 2 diabetes and obesity. A team working with the Endocrine Society, which I didn't know there was one, finds people who limit themselves to just one or two drinks daily, still don't have better protection from type 2 uh, diabetes. So drink away. You're not helping yourself by limiting your, limiting yourself how much you consume, unless, of course, you're driving. It's a different situation. And consumption of magic mushrooms and other hallucinogenics by young people nearly doubled over the last three years. Thank you, Aaron Rodgers. A drink a day could keep heart attacks away, according to American College of Cardiology. And 9 in 10 kids surveyed say they consume YouTube content, and sixty-six percent of those view happens on connected TV. This is kind of scary for people in cable television, but is indeed the case. That is indeed the culmination of more to know, and now you do know more. I feel as though I've done a public service, and I'm really glad I did. Don't forget to go to BrianKilmeachow.com. Sign up for the podcast in case you miss it. It's always going to be sitting there on your iPhone. And don't forget, One Nation comes up every Saturday at 8 o'clock. Uh, you listen to Brian show Keep it here.